Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. You and I have this inborn and insatiable desire to fit in, don't we? I mean, we like to fit in. When we don't fit in, we feel odd. We feel like we're, you know, uh, embarrassed because we're, we're just not like everyone else. And it's uh, something we see in our children, but it's cloaked in some sophistication in our adulthood. But we don't want to be unusual. And yet God says, you know what, this is exactly what I've called you to be different because I'm giving you some instructions that are completely different. young, there's probably nothing worse than being thought of as different. Who doesn't remember desperately trying to keep up with what was cool, wearing stylish clothing, listening to trendy music, and watching popular programs? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is challenging us to embrace being different, even if it means we don't fit in as well. God has made you unique, and His path for you is completely different than anybody else's. Well, here's Pastor Mike to explain. came across an interesting book title this week, a book called The Weirdest People in the World. That was the name of it. I thought, well, that's an odd book. I wonder what's in that book. certainly piqued my curiosity. Then I had this weird thought for just a moment. I thought, well, what if I'm in this book? You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't that that be really depressing? But uh, the more I thought about it, and I pondered it later with a uh, theological perspective, I thought, you know what? I should be in that book, and so should you. You and I should be in that book because if it's written from an everyday man's perspective, they should be looking at us and saying, that group of people, well, they are weird. They're different. You see, because you can't read and study the Bible and not come to the conclusion that if you do what God says and you follow the instructions there, that The net result will be that you will be different, and that's just a polite way to say weird, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, you're going to be unusual. You're not going to be common. You're going to be out of the ordinary. You're not going to be like everyone else. And Jesus anticipated that when he picked a name for us. He said he would call us the church. In Greek, church, ecclesia, it just means those that are, that are called out from the rest. They are, they're unique, they're different, and even calls us individually saints. That's the word he uses, and that just means that we're, we're set apart from everyone else. We're, we're unique. We're not like the others. Not only are we not like the others because God has chosen to place his love on us, we're not like the others because of the behavioral characteristics of our lives. At least we're not supposed to be like the others. You see, but there's a problem. You and I have this inborn and insatiable desire to fit in, don't we? I mean, we like to fit in. When we don't fit in, we feel odd. We feel like we're, you know, uh, embarrassed because we're we're just not like everyone else. And it's uh, something we see in our children, but it's cloaked in some sophistication in our adulthood. But we don't want to be unusual. And yet God says, you know what, this is exactly what I've called you to be, different because I'm giving you some instructions that are completely different. And everyone else is going to live by their own rules, but I want you to live by my rules, and my rules will make you distinct from everyone else. 
And one of the things that Jesus said would be one of the distinctive characteristics, one of the primary distinctive characteristics, is something he reveals to us in John chapter 13. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of John. The fourth gospel tells us and records a discussion that Jesus was having with his disciples when he said, you know, this one thing, if you do it, it'll make you different. You'll be distinct. The world will look at you and not see a normal person because this distinguishing characteristic will set you apart from everyone else. Look at it. John chapter 13. Drop your eyes down to verse number 35. As Jesus says, by this, by this, by this thing I've been discussing, all men will know that you're my disciples. It'll be clear that you're with me and I'm the outcast about to be crucified. They're going to know that you're on my team if you love one another. You love one another. Well, that's an unusual thing to say, isn't it? Love one another. That's going to be the distinguishing quality if we love one another. I mean, aren't there people all over the world that love one another? In our country, 30,000 people in the United States of America will get married this weekend. Go take your camcorder and your microphone and go ask them, do you love each other? What are they going to say? You bet we love you. We're madly in love with each other. That's why we're doing this. We're, we're deeply in love. Well, they must all be Christians then. They all must be disciples of Christ. No, no. Lots of people love each other, or at least they have this relationship that's bonded together by something they call love, but... If you look in the verse above this, Jesus makes it really clear that it's not just love, it's the quality of love that will be distinguishable. Look at it. He says this in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. This is a new, it's different. It's not, it's not the same as you've heard. It's different. And the Bible's full of commands about love, but he's about to up the ante. He says, love one another, and then there's this key two-letter word, circle it, as and that's translating a great little Greek word, kathos, just as, after the same pattern, the same way, in the same way that I've modeled it, just like me. Be a carbon copy of the way that I have loved you. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another in that manner. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What kind of love? The Jesus kind of love. And let me tell you something about that. That was really unique. It was really different than most of us have ever experienced. God's kind of love demonstrated through Jesus Christ is a whole other world. It's not the kind of thing represented behind the words of most people when they say, I love you. Let me demonstrate that for you. Take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we find ourselves in this series as we teach through this book. And you're about to see demonstrated in the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel, David doing something that is really unique. He is demonstrating divine kind of love. And it comes at a wonderful point in this literary work where God has just revealed to David in chapter 7 that he is the object of God's grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't impress me. I'm not doing this because I think you've done so many good things for me. I'm just lavishing upon you my kindness. You don't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you anyway. And in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, he says, I'm going to give you a whole lot more. I'm just going to love you and bless you and be kind to you. 
And that motivated action, didn't it? In chapter 8, what does David do? He goes out and he fulfills his role and he says, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to be active. And so he goes in his first response to grace, obedience. And now, in this next chapter, we see David after he has peace from all of his enemies and there's no more warfare going on and all the dust is settling from all the battles and you see David saying, all right, now I'm going to go and demonstrate and reflect this kind of love that God has shown toward me. And the basis, the catalyst, the instigator of this action in chapter 9, I'm convinced, is the realization that he is the target of God's kindness. And it says in verse number 1 that David asked, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show, now circle this word, this one's critical, Kindness That translates the word in the Hebrew, hesed. And hesed is the word that is used in the Old Testament most often in your Bibles to represent and reflect God's love toward his people. It's faithful. It's qualitatively different. It's consistent. It's not the kind of love that most of us have. It's God's style love. And David says, I want to show God's kind of love, translated here the word kindness. I want to show kindness to someone from Saul's family. And then he tells him why. I want to show it for Jonathan's sake. Now, why would he say that? Because back in the first book, you might remember, during some of the most difficult times in David's life, he leaned on a guy named Jonathan, Saul's son, who was willing to risk his own well-being by turning on his father, so to speak, at least in a social setting, and supporting his father's most hated enemy, David, and he goes and gives him encouragement and he helps him find strength in God. And David and Jonathan create this wonderful, committed relationship, this friendship that blossoms into a covenant in Second Samuel, or First Samuel 20, rather, where David and Jonathan make an agreement. You know what? My descendants and your descendants forever. As far as it depends on me and whatever abilities I have, they're going to be friends. They're going to get along. There's going to be peace. I'll be good to your descendants. You be good to my descendants. And they make a covenant of friendship, the NIV puts it. It's a commitment of hesed, of committed love toward one another. And they say, we're going to be friends. And our descendants will be friends. It was just a few chapters later that Jonathan's cold body was lying dead on Mount Gilboa and he had no longer any power to fulfill this covenant to David nor to his descendants. But David's still alive and after a long tumultuous rise to the throne in Israel, he now with all the dust settling says, I I remember that commitment I made and I'm going to fulfill it. And I'm going to love whoever's left in Saul's line. If if anyone's still alive, and I'm going to be kind to them, generous to them. I'm going to love them. And I'm not going to do it for their sake. I'm going to do it for Jonathan's sake. So someone hearing David say this says, well, you know, I know where we ought to look. And in verse number two, someone informs him that there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And they called him to appear before David. And the king said, are you Ziba? And he said, your servant. Yeah, that's me. What do you want? Verse 3. And there must have been some time between getting this servant and having him appear because something interesting changes in this statement in verse 3. It's the broader perspective, perhaps pondering what he's about to do. The king asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show? And then there's this word. What kind of kindness? God's kindness. This word is added, God's kindness. 
Now, now, do you want to reflect Jonathan's kindness toward you? Do you want to try and repay Jonathan by, by being kind to his de- descendants? Or do you recognize in the wake of chapter 7 that God has given you everything? And as he said in the Davidic covenant, I've been with you wherever you went. And that Jonathan was simply an extension of God's hand in your life. And ultimately, as he ponders it, stroking his beard, as here comes Ziba coming in to report about whether there are any living descendants, he says, man, it was God and it's God's kindness. And I want to reflect some of that in someone else's life. This is a real unique way to love somebody. He hadn't even met him yet. You realize that? David hadn't even seen, who knows what kind of of jerky person would be brought into David's presence right now. We don't know, but he's already decided to love them. And he's decided to love them because he's responding not to the object of his love. He's responding to God. And that's radical. Jot this down if you're taking notes. This is the first thing I'd like you to get. You and I, just like David, need to make sure that we love people for God's sake. And I hope that begs the question and points out and highlights what we're not loving people for. We're not loving people for their sake. We're loving people for God's sake. David, in his most profound and biggest statement about what he's about to do, recognizes that he's about to love someone for someone else's sake. Jonathan is the human agent. God is the ultimate provider. And he says, I'm going to love a person that gets brought into my presence. If there's anyone still left from the house of Saul, and I'm going to be kind to them, not because they're worth it, not because they've blessed me, not because they've been good to me, not because they're wonderful. I'm going to love them, and I choose to love them now for someone else's sake, in the broadest sense, for God's sake. Think about what that would do to our relationships if we could get there. If we could just for a little bit start to say, I'm going to love not because of the object and what it motivates from me. I'm going to love because I got a motivation that transcends the object. Do you see what that does? It's like the first century Roman historian who wrote about the Christians. Here's what he said. It's an amazing quote. He said, those Christians love each other almost before they meet each other. Isn't that a telling statement? They love each other almost before they meet each other. What does that mean? They have this perspective, this hesed, agape kind of love. They recognize that Christ loved us while we were yet, what? Sinners. He demonstrated his love in dying for us and we were his enemies. He loved before we were even lovable, right? We had nothing to offer and we still don't, but God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love. Not based on the object for some other reason. And in our lives, the reason's crystal clear. God has been gracious to me. And if I'm a target of God's grace, then I say, if it comes to loving people, I got to focus on him. That's a hard transition to make, but let me show you. It's common all over the scripture. Keep your finger here and turn to 1 John chapter 4 with me, please. Go to the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, and start turning backwards. You'll find the little book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 shows us that this logic in the most crystal clear way is the kind of paradigm that needs to exist in my mind when I look across the table at my friend or look across the room at my spouse or look across the desk at a colleague, I need to start thinking differently about them. Because the world's love is really clear. And the people standing at most of the altars today getting married are really saying, you have motivated and, 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 and brought out of me all these wonderful feelings and I want to give you my commitment and my love and my life and my money and everything else because you have brought this, you've drawn this out of me. All these things, you're so wonderful, you're so pretty, you're so great, you're so talented, you're wonderful personality, and all those things, the object is the focus, and the object then makes me give. 
Because in reality, that person's giving to me. And all this is coming from that person. All the good feelings, all the green fuzzies, all the lovable things that I hear, all the wonderful things that I see, and then it just draws out of me and I respond. And yet the Bible says, get a whole different object. Get a whole different motivation. Look at it. Are you with me? First John chapter 4. Here's how God puts it. It seems almost illogical, but look at it with me. First John 4. Drop your eyes down. Verse 11. Let me read this incorrectly to show you what I think, what I think you know, most people think it should say. Ready? Verse 11. 1 John 4, 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love him. Now, that's not what it says, but wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't it? Okay, and is it just me? That would make more sense, wouldn't it? God loved me so much, so I'm going to reciprocate his love, and I'm going to love him back. But the text doesn't say that. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love... Now, how did they get in the equation, right? They haven't done anything for me. They haven't been blessing my life. I don't even think that they're all that lovely. Can't I just love you back? God says, you know what? I've given to you. Here's the paradigm. I've been gracious to you. I've loved you. I've been kind to you. I've been generous. I've given. Now, what I'd like you to do... mm, Let's focus your attention here. This is so predicated upon what we learned in chapter 7. In chapter 7, did we not learn that God needs nothing? He's a self-sufficient one. He's a self-sustaining one. He's the king of the universe, and like we read in the book of Psalms, if he was hungry, he certainly wouldn't come asking us, as if he were ever hungry, right? Like Paul said in Acts 17, it's not as though we can serve him because he doesn't need anything. And for me to try to pay him back is an insult to his grace. I can't pay him back. But take our scenario, that little familiar illustration we've used a couple of times now about the rich man who pays $40,000 for this dinner in Bel Air. The billionaire pays all this money, this money for me to go to this posh dinner with all these, you know, who's who in, in the world. And I'm there enjoying this and I couldn't afford it. And I'm there as his guest and he's paid $40,000 for me and my wife to come. And so there we are. And there he is in his tuxedo, and I said it would be an insult for me to dig into my pocket and pull out a few, you know, quarters and try and wink at him and squeeze his hand and say, here, I just want to say thanks, and, you know, just, this is wonderful, and maybe this can, you know, kind of pay back. That would be an insult, right? Same scenario. Black tie, billionaire across the room. Got a four-year-old son. Four-year-old son you happen to see in the corner of this hotel in front of a gumball machine with nothing in his pocket but lint. And you happen to have a couple quarters in your pocket. It would be offensive to dig your quarters out to try and pay the billionaire back. But if the billionaire were to catch this scene from across the room of you going up to his son and pulling out a quarter and paying for his gumball, I don't think he'd be offended, do you? As a matter of fact, I think that would warm his heart. But what if the kid's a brat? I mean, you know what I'm saying? What if the kid you've watched through dinner and he's a total brat and he's the kind of kid you wouldn't want to give gum to anyway? You know what I'm saying? And you've watched what a hassle he is and he's a total little jerky little boy and you're thinking, I don't want to do anything for him. He's really not lovable. And you know he's done nothing for me tonight. He's just been a, just an object over there in the corner. Would that change the scenario? Shouldn't. He's the billionaire's son. And I am indebted to the billionaire. It's ridiculous for me to think I could pay him back. But his kid has a need. And his kid doesn't have a quarter in his pocket. So perhaps I could give to him. And maybe it would bless his father. 
And maybe because his father's done for me, I can do for his son. You're still in 1 John 4? Look across the page, 1 John 3. Familiar reference, you can memorize this one. 1 John 3, 16. Are you ready? Here's another memory verse for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for him. Is that what it says? Here's this bait and switch again. That's not what it says. Why doesn't it say that? It would make sense. He laid down his life for me. Let me lay down my life for him. He sacrificed for me. Let me sacrifice for him. But no, here's how the Bible lays it out. Christ sacrificed everything for you. Would you sacrifice for each other? Do you see that? Do you see what that does to my perspective, whether it's a bad marriage or some jerk that I work with or someone in church I don't get along with anymore? I say, you're not the motive for my love. I change my reason for loving you. My reason for loving you is something so much bigger than you that I love you even when you're not lovable. And I love you even if you don't make me feel the way you used to, be, to feel. I love you in this friendship even if we don't have the same kind of click we used to have. Even if you're not giving as much as I'm putting in, it doesn't matter because I'm loving you for what God gave to me. And when I compare what God gives to me to what I give to you, I got a lot farther to go because I'm loving you for a different reason. And so it is. Back in our passage, 2 Samuel chapter 9, David has signed the blank check saying, I'm going to show Hesed love to a person I've never met before. That can only happen when someone loves for a different reason than the object. That can only happen when the motivation for love is not the person being loved, but it's the God who's given and loved me so much. That's the only way that's going to work. And it can transform every relationship you have. And then note where this text goes and where the narrative goes. It just so happens that the only guy left alive that Ziba is about to tell David about is a paraplegic. Look at it. Verse number three, middle of the verse. Ziba answers the king. There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Now, before you think that's, you know, just what it is today, you need to recognize it's not. Today, of course, in our society, people that can't walk have contributed great things to our society. They can pull up and use their mind in front of a computer terminal. In our technological society, they can be incredible contributors to the community. But in that day, it was different. In an agricultural society, if you couldn't stand up and walk... If you couldn't plow a field, if you couldn't work with your hands and have your legs to motor your body around, you were in big trouble. You better be a part of a wealthy family. Or perhaps you might find yourself outside the city walls begging for a few alms. Because that's how important your legs were in that kind of culture. You're listening to Focal Point and a message called The Unique Love of People Who Know God's Grace from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you'd like the study notes, or if you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also stream the program anytime by downloading the Focal Point mobile app. You know, we work hard to make Pastor Mike's teaching available for you in as many formats as we can, but none of it would be possible without the generous donations of your fellow listeners. If you've given to support this ministry, thank you. Well, for this month's resource, we're featuring a timeless classic from the beloved preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was known for his thoughtful and precise biblical exposition. It's a book titled All of Grace. 
It clearly and concisely explains the futility of relying on your own good works for salvation, because we all need God's grace. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks when you make a donation to Focal Point this month. Just call us at 888-320-5885 or give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your gift by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your regular support plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future, and we're so grateful. So sign up today when you call 888-320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. And by the way, if you've never let us know you're listening before, today's the perfect day to connect. When you do, we're going to send you a special gift. It's a booklet that helps us understand who God is, titled Attributes of God. Find it at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Master Mike. We'll be answering a question that's as old as time. It's one people have asked in every culture and every generation. Why is there evil in the world? Come back for this important discussion Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.